Good morning, High Point. This morning I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 3, verses 7, not from 11, but verses 7, all the way through the end of the chapter, and then from 1 John chapter 4, from verse 7, all the way through the end of the chapter. Um, so it's a little bit long, so I do suggest you read along in the Bible, in the Pew Bible in front of you. I'll be reading from page 1859 in the Pew Bible. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And from verse seven in chapter four. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. 
Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. Hey. We're doing this series called Secure Standing out of the book of 1 John in the Bible because the book of 1 John is specifically written to offer to anybody who will listen to its message assurance of God's salvation, um, of God's legitimizing of your existence and your life and securing you as a person. In psychological terms, the outcome of that is personal security that we're not full of all kinds of problematic insecurities that hurt ourselves and other people and mess up and junk up everything that we're part of. And um, the desire to experience the peace and the emotional relaxation and the lack of fear that comes from a sense of personal security isn't, isn't sort of psychobabble. It is sort of the most primal and foundational place where every human emotion comes from. Um, Your sense of security, whatever you base it in, presets how you react and respond and interact with and think about literally everything. And almost nobody wants to be the sort of person that has confidence but really out of a sense of self-deception and complete ignorance about what they're really like. There are those people out there. They are wonderfully competent, confident and secure, but they're confident without being competent and they're secure without having a reason to be, right? And when our sense of security isn't sorted out, um, that broken confidence leads to outbursts of insecurity and those outbursts either are or ought to be the most harmful, painful, shameful, and humiliating moments of our lives. Now, when they happen, we often don't even recognize them. And sometimes we think there are these moments where we're just kind of like being assertive and like really helping other people understand where we stand. But this is how other people experience them. Got it? This is how other people... I invented the piano key necktie! I invented it! What have you done, Derek? Nothing! You've done nothing! Nothing! That's what our insecure outbursts look like to other people. And... So what, what ends up happening is... 
we all really want a sense of security that is simple and stable. Right? We don't want to have to think about it all the time. We, we may not even want to believe that we have to think about it, but we want something that sort of affirms our existence in every area of our life so that we can just relax and be whatever our self is, and we want something that's relatively simple and stable. And when that isn't properly grounded in what we're supposed to be assured in, we find that assurance in a couple of other things, and it's very predictable. Humans will turn to one of three things. They will either turn to nominalism, which is to be something in name only. I have the card to the club, so I'm a member, right? I am a Christian, so how dare you insinuate that I'm not one, right? I am part of the right political party that is affirming the right moral values, and so therefore, no matter what I actually do or whether I have those moral values, I'm on the right team. You have to approve of me. I have the name, whatever the, whatever the club is that's supposed to affirm my existence, I have the card for that club, and so you have to leave me alone, right? That could be Christian, that could be political, that could be a family name, that could be a place that you think you're so great because you're from there, Green Bay. And so, <laughs> just kidding. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of places that could be said for that. Um, the second is moralism. And that is essentially the belief that, like, whatever a decent person is, you decently do. Therefore, decent people should treat you decently. The, the problem with moralism, besides the fact that it gets crazy legalistic super fast, is everybody thinks they're a good person, but nobody is. And in order for you to think you're a good person when you aren't, you have to artificially narrow moral truth. Usually, it's more convenient if you just narrow it around the things you're already good at and that you already do. Um, and that's what everyone does. And so what you get is these, everybody who thinks they're fabulous on the basis of totally different moral categorizations, partly because they're just confused, but partly because their moral categorizations come from the things that they're good at. That's how you get the guy who's, who doesn't speak to his daughter, but thinks that because he works hard, that he's a good man. Right? Or the guy that doesn't have a job and doesn't want one, but thinks that because he's nice to his friends, he's a good person. Right? Or the woman who's really nice to her younger kids, but gossips maliciously at work about everyone, but thinks that because she's very maternal, she's a fabulous person. Moralism always has this lying effect to us. It's one of the reasons why we can't put our hope in it and we can't base our security in it. And the last is mysticism, which is an immediate experience of whatever it is that would ground you. Spiritually, that would be God. If you don't believe in God, then it would be something else. But there's, there's some desire. So, for example, um, rampant promiscuity, for example. Where does that come from? It comes from a mystical worship of belonging and feeling, feeling the ultimate absolute sensation of the acceptance of being in ultimate acceptance with another. It's, one, it's not the only thing that produces it. Recreation can produce it. But one of the things that produces it in a lot of people is that. There's lots of different forms of mysticism. There's certain kinds of sports worship that are mysticism, essentially. 
It's also a form of nominalism. I'm a good person because I cheer for the... All of these. Now, you might think, well, wait a second, Nick. Um, isn't Christianity supposed to be spirit? Like, what's happening here? Here's what's happening here. All of the, all three of these basic categories that these are built on are all part of real faith, really belonging to Jesus. You can't be a Christian without the name. You have to take on the name Jesus. That's why we do baptisms, right? What happens in baptisms? You are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can't be a Christian without taking on the name of Jesus and becoming his disciple, right? But, it, but taking on the name, you've got to have more than that. Right? Same thing with moralism. If you become a Christian, really, are you going to experience moral transformation? Right? The answer is absolutely. There is no legitimate, realistic, and authentic Christian faith that doesn't profoundly morally transform people over the course of their lives. Like, immensely, in a way that is often very painful and humiliating for you, but also incredibly freeing, formational, and developing. That produces something very beautiful and good. There is no authentic Christianity without that. But if you think that doing the good stuff and being a little different is the thing that legitimates that you're really a Christian, that's false, and you're going to slide into legalism and moralism really fast, like visqueen and baby oil downhill. Okay, and then mysticism is similar. D does it mean that we don't have an immediate experience of God in Christian faith? Or that Christian faith isn't fundamentally spiritual? Well, no, it doesn't. But what it means is you cannot find your security in the immediate experience of the spirituality of God's presence. Nominalism doesn't work because you can have just a name and not the faith itself. Moralism doesn't work because it almost always leads towards legalism. And it leaves, your, it leaves the heart unchanged, and there has to be a spotlight on the human heart. Always. Any true spirituality that is at all of Christ always has a spotlight on the human heart. And moralism doesn't keep the spotlight on the human heart. And mysticism, not only is it, is it not self-proving, you can have all kinds of mystical experiences that you can pitch your faith later and then you'll just explain them differently. And not only does it, is it prone to self-deception, and it doesn't, it works for so few. Most people who try to be mystics do, are not successful. But it's also unshareable. There's no community in mysticism. If I have an incredibly profound mystical experience, I can't actually take it out of me and put it into you. Now, if I have an experience with the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit teaches me something, I can express that to you and you can benefit from it. But the mystical reality itself is uncommunicable. And it often leads to fractiousness between people who are focused on their spiritual experience being dominated by that, that immediate experience. Now, in seeming utter contradiction to what I've just said, the point of this passage is that we know, 
if you want to really understand what John is saying about spiritual assurance, what he is saying is we know that we live in him. We know that we belong to God and God belongs to us in Christ and in his spirit because of the spirit that he gave us. He said a number of things, in First John says a number of things up until chapter 3, but in chapter 3 there is this turn in specifically applying to the spirit. And what he says is, the evidence that you really belong to God is, is slightly more complicated and yet just as simple as I took the name, I do the stuff, I feel the presence. It is, you are in him if you have his spirit. Now, your response to that might be, Nick, I thought you just got done saying, right? But just hang with me for just a minute, and I'll show you why, why I've done it that way. So the, the, fir the first thing is, that we need to look at is, this is what it says. God has given you his spirit to assure you. If you're a Christian, God has given you his spirit. His spirit is with you. It says you are in him and he is in you and his presence one of the effects of his presence is meant to be to 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 assure you and the outcome of that assurance is to secure you in your in your person now one of, one of the reasons why this is important is as you go through 1 John, there's a bunch of places where he says, we know. And the reason why he says we know is because the point of 1 John is assurance. Remember, whatever 1 John says, this is the end that it's aiming towards. You knowing you belong to Jesus and the security on that foundation it produces, right? And so there's a number of we knows, for, and there's like seven just in this passage, but let's go over just a couple. In 1 John 3.10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. In verse, in verse 7, he said it the opposite way. He says the first part negatively and the second part positively instead of the first part positively and the second part negatively. He says, don't, don't be deceived. That's negative for know how to be a child of God. He who does what is right is righteous. Right? The second one is John 3, 14. We know we've passed from death to life. Death to life, that's just a, another way of saying we've experienced salvation. We've experienced regeneration or being, or we've experienced the new birth. We've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. I think the newer translation says brothers and sisters. It's non-gender specific, but the, the word one another and brothers and sisters in the context of 1 John, this is actually important later, is specifically referring to people who are credibly Christian. That doesn't mean we don't love everybody. It means in relationship to assurance— one of the things that marks real spiritual life is being drawn in love and naturally giving love to other people in whom you see the life of Jesus. I'll get to why that is later. In 324, it says this. Sorry, 1820 says, Dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. So actual actions of love towards others. This then is how we know we belong to the truth. 324, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And then 413, we know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us the spirit. So you see those last two, 
Um, John believes he's not contradicting anything that came before it by saying, the way that we can know that we live in God and that God lives in us, which is also how we know we've passed from death to life, that we are the children of God, every other way he talks about salvation. He says we know it by the spirit he's given us. Now, if you um, recognize that, then Christian spirituality involves abiding or living in the spirit, which is, which is basically to have a close and personal dynamic clung to and lived in relationship with something. That's what abide means. And what he's saying is, and that we need to abide or live in or remain in the spirit. Are you getting more confused? I hope so. Okay. Now, the reason why that's important is because that should sound like a contradiction to what I just said in the introduction, which is this, that you cannot find your grounding or your assurance in the immediate presence of God that is self-interpreting. That is a mysticism in the negative sense. And yet, John is saying that it is the presence of the Holy Spirit that assures us that we live in Him and He lives in us. Which leads to two questions, the insecure questions say, well then wait, wait a second, then how do I know that I have the Spirit? It just seems to be a circular argument. Or the deception question. Remember, because John says a number of times, don't let anyone deceive you. In this passage, he says it twice. In verse 7, he says, brothers, don't let anyone deceive you. And then in one, he says, listen, you need to test every spirit. There's lots of false prophets. So there's a very strong focus on deception, and that deception related to something spiritual. Right? That's in the context of, in 4.12, he says what? He says, no one sees, no one has seen God. His point there is not, no one has seen God, but you experience the Spirit, and so you know God exists because of his immediate mystical presence. That's not the argument God, he's making. John is making the argument that just like no physical people in the Old Testament literally saw God with their eyes, so you don't see God, meaning you don't immediately experience him in a self-fulfilling way. That's not how it happens. And the reason we know that is because in the, the rest of the verse it says, but if we live in love, if we love our brothers and they love us, God's, God's presence is fulfilled in us. Right? It doesn't point to another mystical experience. So John is working from the presence that you don't experience God in such a way as in and of itself, his, the immediate presence of his being is felt by your being such that that can ground your security. Christians that believe that turn into mystical Jesus heroin addicts. It's not a healthy spirituality. And on the other side, John says, you have to get this right because this is how you tell where a, there's a deceiving voice. Like when somebody's speaking for God, they're speaking from a spirit. How do you tell if they're a, a true prophet or a false prophet? And prophet here is generic. It is somebody trying to impart to you truth, spiritual truth. How do you know if they're lying? How do you know if they think that they're right, but they're totally off the rocker, that the spirit in them isn't the spirit of God? That's the point. And the reason why this is a little bit difficult is because John is actually intentionally using the word spirit with both its definitions at the same time. John is a little bit prone to this. 
For example, in the John's Gospel, in chapter 1, there's one place in, where it says that the darkness has, the light has come into the world, but the darkness has not understood it, right? That word can mean understood. It can also mean overmastered. It can mean comprehension, or it can mean pinned in a wrestling match, right? A similar English word would be the word mastered, right? Have you mastered a subject? Have you mastered your opponent, right? And when you read John, you're like, well, which does he mean? And when you read it through the first time, he appears to mean the first. And then you read it through again, you're kind of like, he could kind of mean both. And he does. That doesn't mean that any word means anything it can mean. The context tells us. And you see, in this context, what John is saying, if we read the whole passage closely, is that the Spirit is recognizable not by our immediate sensation of his, the presence of his being. The, the, we know the Spirit is presence. His assuring presence comes from the Spirit's Spirit. So you can say it this way. There's Spirit big S. That is, that is Spirit in terms of being. That is literally the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. He is God. He is a being. And then what comes out of the Holy Spirit is his persona, his attitude, his belief, his, his passions. Everything about him flows out of him. Right? Just like, just like you flow out of you. Right? So, so for example, I have a persona. Like when I say certain words and I flop around like this, is that my being that you're detecting? No, but it's coming from my psychology, my inner sense of who I am. It's, it's coming out, and if I have integrity, anybody who has integrity, there's no division between those two, right? It's, it, what, what you are comes out, right? Jesus actually said one time, out of the, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so, just like all of us have a, a personhood, which is not our actions, but our personhood, our being, produces a persona, how we act, what we do. And in the Gibson household, after Jesus is awesome, the next motto is, show me, don't tell me. We got that from 1 John, right? That what's in comes out. And so the, the assuring presence of the Spirit is the assuring presence that the Spirit's Spirit is present in you and in the person that we're discerning, whether or not they're a false prophet or not. Which means that every Christian, in order to experience assurance, has to invest in the spiritual discipline and in the in spiritual capacity for what's called discernment, which is the ability to understand what's really going on. You have to learn to be spiritually discerning spiritually wise. It's necessary because there is a discerning process to the Spirit's presence. Now, if you go through the book of 1 John, um, there are all these statements that, have, that he doesn't mention, the whole, like the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned by name in 1 John until chapter 3. But there are all these other criteria for real faith that John gives before 3-7. 
Or really, later, it's like 321, where he mentions the Holy Spirit for the first time. So why doesn't he just start talking about the Spirit right away? Well, you see, all of the things that he gives as criteria are all things that are entirely in line with the character of God. And so therefore, when the persona of the Spirit comes across, he already does all those things. So when John says, listen, you can't be a Christian and not be a Christian, okay? Like, if you become a Christian, you have to stop doing things that Jesus calls sins. And anybody who just does whatever they want, just keeps doing all of them, they're not a Christian, right? Well, see how that's totally compatible with, we're assured by the Spirit, by the presence of the Spirit's Spirit. If the Spirit is present— and the Spirit's Spirit is present in us, are we just going to go on sinning like we always have? Of course not, right? That's not possible. And so all the criteria that he gives, he, I'll tell you who the child of God is, John says, he who does what is right is righteous. Right? That's not a different message. The Holy Spirit believes in what's right. Jesus came to show us what's right and to set us right with God. And so, if the Holy, if the Spirit's Spirit is present, what is that going to produce? But people, heaven bent on doing what's right, which will produce real righteousness. And what will our response be to Christian brothers in whom Jesus is being formed in them? Right? What will happen when we see the Jesus part of their transformation? Right? Well, we'll be drawn to its beauty. It's the presence of Jesus. It's the grace of God and active. It is the Spirit's Spirit present in them. Because when the Spirit is present, His Spirit is present. And if you learn to discern the Spirit's Spirit, you will know. You will—we will know— when the Spirit is present in us. And we will know when the Spirit is present in others and in the people who wish to teach and lead us. As you go through um, the passage, there's a number of tests of faith that you see in a number of places, right? But all of them really just point us to Jesus, right? That if you go through 1 John, it's you don't love the world, you confess Jesus, you do what Jesus says, and you love others. Now, let's break that down. The world is literally, in John, everything that's opposed to Jesus. So it kind of makes sense that if you belong to Jesus, you wouldn't be for everything that's against Jesus. So love the world, just, that should be an easy one, right? Second, the second one is that if the Spirit's Spirit is present, you will confess Jesus. And John gets a little specific about this. It will not be you generally like Jesus' moral teaching, except for his particular moral teachings which is sort of the common response. People say, I think Jesus is a good moral teacher. They have no idea what he taught morally, and they don't like what he taught morally, right? But here's what John says. You will confess that Jesus is the Son of God, who is the Christ, who died as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, and is therefore the Savior of the world, and who came actually in the flesh. All of those are in 1 John as mandatory confessions when the Spirit's Spirit is present. So in you, in a possible teacher, and another person that you're wondering if their profession of Christian faith is credible, test number one would be, 
do they confess an orthodox Christ? Not just, oh, I like Jesus, or, yeah, I'm a Christian. No, no, no. <laughs> do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who is the Messiah, the Christ, who died as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, and is therefore the world's Savior, who has come in the flesh? If somebody confesses those, that is good evidence. If they will not confess those and are not teachable about confessing those, then there is something amiss about the Spirit's, the present of the Spirit's Spirit. That doesn't necessarily mean they're absolutely not a Christian. Sometimes there are, there's conflict in there, but it absolutely means that they can't be your teacher. And if it's in, if it's you, then you need to deal with that. Because that is part of the most basic confession of what Christian faith means. The second is, is that is Jesus commands, guess, guess what? The Spirit's Spirit is all about what Jesus says is right. It turns out that God agrees with himself. And so the Spirit's Spirit is all about what Jesus told us about reality, and what Jesus told us to do, and what he says is good, and what he says we should do if we love God. And so there is complete unity between a real, uh, actual real Christian obeys God, and an actual Christian has the, the spirit he has given us. Do you get that? Both big spirit and that spirit's little less spirit. Why? Because those two are utterly compatible. The spirit agrees with Jesus that he's the Christ. The spirit agrees with Jesus in what he believes is the truth and what's right. And the spirit agrees with Jesus in that it rejoices in Christ being formed in someone. So when somebody comes to Jesus, and whatever else is true about them, Jesus is being formed in them through the presence of the Spirit and the Spirit's Spirit coming out in them. When a person who loves Jesus and has the Spirit's Spirit sees that, the natural response is to rejoice, to love, to feel bonded with, to feel like the person is a cosmic brother or sister to you. Whatever else is wrong with them, and there will be many things. Especially the last phrase, right? So, and the example John uses negatively here is Cain, right? So if you don't know much about the Bible, the first brothers in the Bible are Cain and Abel. And Abel really loved God. And Cain, his older brother, just really didn't that much. And so they both brought their sacrifices to God, and Abel brought the very best that he had. And Cain just brought some of the things that he had. And it says in Genesis that God really— enjoyed Abel's sacrifice and approved of it. And he did not approve of Cain's. And so Cain's, so what Cain's response was that he was furious. And he killed his brother. Now, it is true that a person who does not love Jesus will see certain things in us if we're really transformed by Jesus that they will like. We might be kinder, we might be more honest, we might be more considerate, we might be more respectful and dignifying of their humanity. There's a lot of things that are not religiously specific in their experience of them that we will do that they'll be like, I really like that. What? I re the, question, the question comes when the Jesus-specific thing hits them. How do they respond? When you cannot comply with what they want you to do, 
So they, so, so there might be a, a woman named Sarah at work that you're friends with, and she really likes that you show up on time, that you do your work so she doesn't have to do extra work because you're lazy. Because Jesus is forming your character, and that benefits her. But then when she comes over at lunch to gossip to you about Alice, and you say, Sarah, I, I can't, I can't talk, I can't, I can't hear that, and I can't talk like that. Um, and, well, why? Well, you've got to understand that I believe that everybody who works here is, like, literally made in the image of God. And so to do that is to, like, take a hatchet to— the picture of the beauty of God himself. If there's something wrong with her, we have to try to find a way. That's just, I believe that because I belong to Jesus. What happens? You see, somebody who is regenerate and loves Jesus and has the Spirit's spirit in them will be cut to the heart by that. Right? They don't hate you, they'll hate themselves. They'll say, oh my gosh, you are so right. Oh, how did I fall back into that? I'm so critical of her. I don't pay attention to my own sin at all. It's, it's so easy to just fall back into this moralism and just like, I'm right. You're so—thank you. Thank you for telling me that. Right? That's, that's what the Spirit's Spirit says. That's not what the Spirit that, that Cain was filled with said. That spirit says, That's a, this is a personal attack, and we are at risk if this is allowed to persist. This self-righteousness, this showboating in front of God, this do-goodery, this goody-two-shoeness. How dare he? And it will be hated. That's why John says, John, in John's gospel, he records Jesus saying, don't be afraid if the world hates you. And he says in 1 John, if you are a believer, you should not be afraid if some people, when Jesus, specifically sort of Jesus comes out, and it, it is offensive to how they are being, and it could attack their sense of security, don't be surprised if they act like Cain taking a rock to Abel's skull to you. Because listen, when you tread on somebody else's sense of security, they will res they sometimes respond so viciously. Because remember, that is where your sense of survival resides. And so if somebody's security is in a sense that you will always be on my side. I can always trust you to be on my side. You'll be on my side. So I can gossip to you because you'll be on my side. And then you say, I'm, I'm on Jesus' side. It's like the angel that comes to, to Jericho and Joshua's like, are you on my side? He's like, I'm not really on anybody's side. I'm just leading the Lord's army. And this time I'm on your side. Right? That's every Christian's response. I'm on your side in your humanity, but I'm not automatically on your side no matter what you do. You see, when you say that to somebody whose security is partly wrapped up and you'll be on my side, you have just attacked their sense of survival. It's the most visceral thing possible. And you should expect to be bitten like a dog 
whether they profess to be a Christian or not. And there are some Christians, there are lots of Christians, there's all of us Christians, that have some of our security residing in something besides Jesus. And I just, I'm just telling you that when somebody steps on that, you are going to be like, I invented the piano key tie! What have you done? Nothing! And see, if you, but see, if you love Jesus, what's going to happen when that happens is the Spirit's Spirit is going to say, yeah, that's, that is a ridiculously foolish outburst we all just heard. And let me help you repent of that, and let me help you realize that idol, that thing you are hoping in and trusting in that is not Jesus, that allowed you to be so manipulated and so insecure when it was threatened. But you see, the Spirit's Spirit is, is still just, He's always just leading you back to Jesus. Jesus and other people. Jesus as He reveals it in the truth of His commands. Jesus in His very person as the Christ. And what that means is, is that it's actually not that hard to learn to be discerning about the spirits of others in our spirits as to whether or not they belong to Jesus. If they have the Spirit's Spirit, they belong to Jesus. If you have the Spirit's Spirit, you belong to Jesus. And you see, the discernment of that isn't really all that complicated. It's just humiliating and painful. But through that humiliation and pain that draws us to repentance and trust in God, there is security. And in that security, in the assurance of being in Him and, and Him being in us, is an enormous freedom of peace and joy and strength and courage and all the things you really want. And so you just, you can ask of yourself or of whoever you're wondering if they should be your teacher, Right? Do they confess Jesus as he is? Right? Son of God, Messiah, atonement, Savior of the world, in the flesh. Do they affirm doing what's right according to Jesus? And does it, do they love Jesus' people, or do they respond to overtly Christian? Like, Jesus said, not just, oh, you're good, but like, in line with Jesus all the way. How do they respond to that? Do they respond as though they're personally threatened by it? Or do they respond that they are so thankful that you would set such an example for them and bring them back from whatever they were sliding into? And that you'd be so faithful to them that you'd tell them the truth and live the truth? So let's end with a couple applications. Let's just, let's just do three. One, assurance is not a pipe dream. God came in the physical person of Jesus so that salvation could be objective and clear and direct, and so therefore you could know that you live in him and he lives in you, 
that you've crossed from death to life, that you've become a child of God, that you have eternal life in you. So that from that assurance could come real security. And you guys, listen. Real deep human security. People who are deeply secure is so rare. Our level of sophistication in hiding our insecurities, that might be at an all-time high, but I can't speak for the history of the world. But real, deep, natural security, where there is no division between the person you are inside and the person that comes out in your persona, where you can have full integrity and let who is in there come out and it not sound like the piano tie guy. That is so rare. Most of us are constantly translating our insecure thought and emotions into functionally stable, interpersonally allowable statements or actions. Knowing you're saved is possible, and therefore a full, deep, and complete experience of human security from the level of survival all the way up to joyful fulfillment is possible. It is offered on a platter to us, and it requires just repentance and faith. It requires acceptance. And for some of us, acceptance for the first time. You need to come to Jesus for the first time. You need to forget whatever else you're doing. Whatever else, whatever other program you're on, you need to let it go. Right now would be a great time. And you need to invite Jesus in and his spirit. And that comes by repentance and faith. I would—this program I'm doing is idolatry. It's wrong. I'm done with that. And I'm sorry for it. Forgive me. I want to receive the atoning sacrifice for Jesus. He is the Savior of the world, so he's the Savior of me. And I I want to receive regeneration of heart from the inside out. I want to receive your spirit, and I want the Spirit's spirit to come out of me. And just like that, you can have eternal life in you. You can cross from death to life. Just like that. But you won't become it in name only. Some of us need to revisit the plateau of our personal security and figure out how many of those bricks are Jesus and how many of those bricks are something else. And I promise you that will be an embarrassing process. It always is when I have to redo it and redo it and redo it because sin starts popping out. Whenever sin starts popping out of you, the plateau is not all Jesus. You are not standing on all Jesus in your personality. Every time sin comes out, pride comes out, there's some—there is a non-Jesus brick in your security plateau. And you need to find it. And that sin will lead you to it. If you'll recognize it as sin, repent of it, and then ask the Spirit's Spirit, the Spirit in His Spirit, to guide you to where that leads down there. But listen, if you're not—if you're afraid to go into the monster-infested wine cellar of your heart— There's nothing but bad stuff going to keep coming out of there. But the Spirit, who will constantly speak the truths of Jesus to you, will help you deal with that. The second is, is that if you become discerning, you can escape spiritual deception. That can really happen. 
I cannot tell you how many thousands of Christians every year, perhaps millions globally, are led terribly astray by horribly false teachers. Listen, there are a lot of professions, especially leadership professions, that draw the worst and the best people to them. Media, high-level administration, public office, the pastorate, teaching, almost any public vocation at all draws the worst people and the best people. And so there's, you better be able to discern because it is a strange pile of people. And you'd better be, as a follower, even if you think you're at the bottom level of following, well, I follow people who follow people who follow people. Well, listen, that's not a great position to be in. You better be sure that the person you're following knows who they're following, who knows who they're following, who knows who they're following, and that string of discernment is intact. And you're actually not invited to be that much of a sheep, frankly. Every Christian is to develop their powers of discernment. Strengthened by the Spirit's Spirit. But knowing the criteria laid out for us right here in John, listen, if you just get those three criteria straight, confesses an Orthodox Jesus in those five ways, believes in what Jesus said he believes in, and obeys his commands, and loves Jesus formed in people, you will be a semi-expert discerner. So much so that with the Spirit's Spirit coming out of you, having that discernment, your intuitions will be almost always dead on. Internally, mentally, you will create a discernment algorithm that you can crank it into and use your deeper thinking for it, and then you can create a family of discerners that you can then check with. And you get all that rolling, and listen, you ain't going to be a spring turkey coming into the shotgun with a little Sorry, hunting illustration. Like, you're not going to be that gullible. And you can do this. If you're, if you're nine, you can do this. You can know if your grown man pastor is, is a unorthodox, spiritually lying person that deserves to be like shepherd crooked off the stage at like nine. If you just believe what John laid out for you, and you certainly can do it at whatever age the rest of us are. And lastly, you can be released for so much good out of the security that comes from the Spirit. It says in chapter 3, this is how we know if we actually do concrete acts of love because we love our brothers, we'll know we're children of God and our hearts will be set at rest in his presence. And then you know what it says? If our hearts don't condemn us, meaning the insecurity of our hearts don't over, doesn't overcome and destroy us, if we overcome it in our security in Christ and in his spirit, then what happens is, what does it say? We obey his commands. We do whatever pleases him. We ask for anything in prayer and he'll give it to us. Right? There's this picture of this enormously fruitful person that in, in their work, while they're shopping, while they're driving, while they're parenting, while they're dating, while they're studying, while they're designing, while they're doing, while they're going to church, while they're serving others, while they're doing everything that they're doing, literally everything that they're doing. They're free. 
sisters free to, to walk with God. Listen, um, I know that for a lot of you, and I feel this for me as well, you actually don't believe that's possible. You believe that Jesus can do some kind of overhaul on you, but that he can't, he's not, he can't really produce, literally, human security in you through assurance. But if you just listen to all the things that just John shares, just in these four pages that Jesus has created, it's a pretty big start. Is it your parents? Your relationship with your parents that's created all kinds of insecurity? It's one of the first things he said, that when we come to Jesus and we receive his spirit, we become a what? A child of God. God becomes our new and greater father and begins to heal as a good father everything that we should have needed in a parent. Jesus becomes our older brother in the faith, and the Bible says, our, a truer friend. So whatever friends have betrayed you, whether your other siblings have just wreaked havoc in what they've done to you in your life, either while you were growing up or still now, you have a truer older sibling in Jesus. You have a truer and greater friend in Jesus. Right? Is it is it grounding? Like, is it, well, I can't really know. Is it an existential, like, angst thing? Well, John says, you're, listen, you're, you're asking the wrong question. You're right. No one sees God. You're right. But if we love and they love, the love of God is made complete in us. And that is a product only of the Spirit's Spirit. But if it's a product of the Spirit's Spirit, then the Spirit is present. And if the Spirit is present, we live in Him and He lives in us. And if He lives in us and we live in Him, then we belong to Jesus, who is the atoning Savior of the world. And so whether your existential problem is, what's really there, can we really know? Or whether it's, really, I've, I've really kind of done a lot. Like, my problem is me. One of the beauties of Jesus ending our insecurity is um, it matters in effect to other people how much you've sinned, but in terms of your life being set right and you being freed from guilt and shame and the shame other people heap on you, the shame you project them heaping on you, all of that the answer for it is not you getting out of the red back into the black. The answer for that is atonement. The act of Jesus substituting himself and wiping away your guilt and shame by taking it on himself and coming so into union with you in the Spirit that you are in him and he is in you and you are counted one. You see, if you really start thinking through the gospel and everything that has happened, all of the places in which your insecurities linger, they're only holding out. 
those, those strongholds are not impenetrable. Those places that keep you trapped are not undestroyable. But they do have to be assaulted by faith. You do have to be led by the moving of the Spirit in you to go against them in faith and to learn to believe in Jesus for those things rather than in something else and to find that security in his assurance only. And the Spirit will lead you there. And as you go to what you know will be the fight of your life to face your deepest insecurities, you will know that you're going in the right direction because you will be led by the Spirit. And you'll know that you live in Him and that you're a child of God and that you've crossed from death to life and that you have eternal life in you. And you will have the courage necessary and the peace necessary and the joy and the hope and all you require and you will find yourself happy in the greatest fights of your life. And you will find yourself able to deal with everybody else's stomping outbursts of insecurity and you will be able to have compassion on them because you'll know why it happens this way. And you'll know what the remedy is. And their outbursts will not produce more insecurity in you. You'll have past healing and new immunity and the ability to minister to the insecurities of others grounded in a human security that comes from the assurance that comes from the presence of the Spirit. And you know he's present when you can see the Spirit's Spirit coming out of you and living amongst us as we love one another. Let's pray. Father, I, I just pray that you'd put this together. You'd help us to see it in all its pieces and that it would be simple in our eyes. I pray that right now you would minister a sense of peace as, as some people are believing this. Some people for the first time believing, Jesus, that you can do this. And I pray that, that they would sense your spirit's spirit, that feeling of peace that comes, or, or hope again, or, or sorrow, or some strange mixture of emotions, but that seem to be leading somewhere. And pray that you would give them the grace to respond in faith and in repentance and in a willingness to follow and live in you, to abide, to be clung to and to cling to you knowing that you do all the heavy lifting. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.